You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 22nd of December 2023 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. Coming up on today's programme, Ukraine considers options for dealing with its military manpower shortage. Also ahead... Uh, We have worked hard and diligently over the course of the past week to come up with a resolution that uh, we can support. And we do have that resolution now and we're ready to vote for it. We'll look at how the papers are covering the ongoing wrangling over a UN Security Council resolution for Gaza, among other stories, later in the show. I still think it's really important to find connection to a toy or a game that you have to play with, not like it plays for you. The Finnish toy company still supplying Santa with old-school options, and our weekly reflection on the degree to which the last week has enlarged our understanding of anything. That's all coming up right here on The Briefing on Monocle Radio. And welcome to today's edition of The Briefing with me, Andrew Muller. Ukraine's Defence Minister Rustem Umarov has said that Ukrainian men between the ages of 25 and 60 currently living abroad should expect to be asked to return home and report for duty on pain of unspecified sanctions. The suggestion follows an acknowledgement by Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky that Ukraine needs nearly half a million more soldiers as its second winter of full-scale war with Russia descends. Well, joining me now from Kiev is Hannah Hopko, head of the Democracy in Action Conference, a former Ukrainian MP and former head of the Ukrainian Parliament's Committee on Foreign Affairs. Um, Hannah, first of all, to Rustem Omarov's remarks, is it entirely clear what he had in mind? So actually, it's important for Ukraine to keep fighting with Russia, knowing that Russia has more manpower and more financial resources. And look what's happening with uh, North Korea, which is capable of providing Russia with more weapons than uh, the global trade power, the EU. So this is why in the war of attrition, actually Russia demonstrated readiness for the protracted war of attrition and hoping to win with uh, the use of uh, uh, it's uh, considerable resources. So I think uh, for Ukraine, it's really important. And you know that in the parliament now there are discussions how to amend the law on mobilization just to be prepared for uh, spring uh, offensive and keep uh, fighting with Russians. I mean, is this causing any kind of schism among Ukrainians in Ukraine? Is there much resentment uh, of those men of fighting age who have left the country? And by some counts, it's upwards of 750,000 people. So, of course, um, for many Ukrainians who expected to uh, receive more weapons supply as we were promised to this year spring offensive so these delays with western military support helped russia get better prepared for ukraine's offensive and we most certainly don't want uh, that to continue and actually i think it's really important that western leaders 
uh, also understand that it's not that Russian war against Ukraine is also the war against the West. And the West has everything to lose. Also, like we in Ukraine, foremost, it's global leadership. And I think that, uh, of course, for, for Ukrainians who are already in 10 years of 10th year of uh, uh, Russian ongoing aggression and two year of the full scale um, uh, genocidal war. So, of course, it's harder and harder. And this is why the, the call uh, uh, from Minister of Defense to Ukrainians, which are living abroad. So because it's a historical civilizational war and we already sacrificed best of the best of our people. And after Bucha, what we've seen there of course, justice is important for never again uh, that Russia or other authoritarian state could not break the international uh, rules-based order and sovereign and uh, sovereign um, and territorial integrity of independent states. But that half a million figure that President Zelensky cited as as what Ukraine now needs, um, what do you think that tells us about how he sees the next stage of this war going? Is this about trying to uh, prepare for a long-term war of attrition, as you were suggesting earlier? So, of course, uh, it's uh, for, for us Ukrainians in the war of attrition, the key is um, uh, our people, because the strategic value of Ukraine is our people, the best engineers, IT specialists. And my question to our Western partners also, uh, stop pretending that the West cannot somehow can somehow self-isolate itself from the new reality crafted by the anti-Western forces. So, and actually, what is the end game of the West if Ukraine runs out of soldiers? Uh, I'm very thankful to Czech uh, uh, people. They are now collecting money to buy more drones to Ukraine and uh, electronic warfare systems. But we need more also anti-air defense systems. Look what's happening in Kiev. Russia keeps terrorizing Ukrainian civilians by attacking uh, critical infrastructure and residential areas, like with missiles, with guided aerial bombs and drones uh, made in Iran. So it's every day, every, even now when we speak, there is Siren uh, uh, raid. And actually, uh, this night, what's happening in Kiev, so even Kiev, uh, we we haven't uh, managed to protect the capital of Ukraine because Russia adjusted its tactics and um, actually received more resources from this axis of evil states to keep fighting against us. Um, Hannah, just finally, if you think ahead to the new year, which is about to dawn upon us, does it feel different to this time last year? This time last year, there was certainly a lot of optimism among Ukrainians we were speaking to, yourself included, about what the the spring counteroffensive might do for Ukraine. Do you feel that that amount of optimism and resilience is still there, even as um, there is a certain amount of foot dragging from Ukraine's allies about continuing to supply? Uh, the weapons and money you need? So first, uh, among Ukrainians, the fighting spirit is still so high because we understand in case of uh, being defeated, it's a nightmare. So uh, Russians will kill everyone. People like me, unfortunately, cannot stay in Ukraine. So this is why we need to keep fighting. But my call 
is to the Western partners, step up your game, help Ukraine defend the free world uh, from the growing threat of anti-Western powers. And actually, we are very disappointed because we expected to get more support. And this approach, as long as it takes, as long as we can, it's not workable. Actually, we need to change Western behavior because people feel this pressure when we have no guarantees for sustainability of support for 2024. What's happening in Washington, D.C., what's happening in Canada, and actually next year there will be elections everywhere. So this is why I think the, the, the world should either prepare to the third world war or to help Ukraine to defeat Russia. And actually defeating Russia means defeating the axis of evil. Anna Hopko, thank you for joining us on The Briefing. You're listening to Monocle Radio. Here is Emma Searle with the day's other headlines. Thanks, Andrew. After nearly a week of delays, the United States has declared it is ready to support a revised UN Security Council resolution that would call for more aid to enter the Gaza Strip. The new draft text calls for conditions for a sustainable cessation of hostilities in Gaza. The Security Council is expected to vote on the resolution later today. At least 14 people were killed and dozens injured in a shooting at a university in Prague on Thursday. Local police are still working to uncover the motive behind the country's worst ever mass shooting. Czech President Petr Pavel has appealed for unity, declaring Saturday a national day of mourning. A Hong Kong court has rejected Jimmy Lai's request to dismiss a sedition charge against him as the media tycoon faces a landmark national security trial. The founder of the defunct pro-democracy newspaper Apple Daily has been charged with conspiracy to publish unlawful publications under a colonial-era sedition law. And the French city of Montpellier has become the latest European city to allow all of its residents to ride public transport for free. Residents with a special pass are permitted to ride trams and buses free of charge in the southern city. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Emma. You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio, and let's continue now with a a brief whisk through today's newspapers. Joining me in the studio to do exactly that is Terry Stiasny. I put the syllable from your surname in your first name. (laughs) Although Thierry, it's got something to it. Uh, Terry Stiasny, the political journalist and author and a familiar voice uh, to Monocle Radio listeners. Uh, We will start, uh, Terry, with this repeatedly delayed uh, resolution on Gaza. Is anybody presently any the wiser? Well, it seems to be that, I mean, everyone's saying we might finally vote on a UN Security Council resolution. But I mean, if you look at the papers everywhere, it's got a sort of a live blog that is constantly updating to tell us whether anything has has changed yet. Um, But looking at the latest in The Guardian, they are saying that they, uh, the US ambassador is saying we're ready to vote on a resolution. And they seem to have changed the language in a way that the the US can accept. So they're replacing the call for an urgent suspension of hostilities with an appeal for urgent steps to allow safe and unhindered humanitarian access and creating the conditions for a sustainable cessation of hostilities, um, which is the kind of language I suppose that Britain and Germany were using in the last week. And I think the hope is that, you know, finally you can get everybody onto the same page, but whether they vote on it and whether everyone's going to accept that is another question. I mean, it's all been terrifically exciting for those of us who enjoy passing the menu 
minutiae uh, of diplomatic texts because there was also apparently a wrangle over whether this should be an urgent ceasefire or an urgent and lasting um, ceasefire. But it strikes me that one of the real oddities about this, though, is this: all this is going on in order to persuade the United States to vote yes on something. Um, but unlike things usually like this, all the way through it, the United States has been going, we really want to vote yes on this. Please, everybody draft something we will vote yes on. Well, yes, they seem to be. And they seem to be much more engaged in this. But I think one of the other questions is, you know, is, is Russia going to vote? Because you can do all the work you like to get the US on board with it. And then if Russia is going to, to vote against it, then a lot of that effort seems to have gone to waste. But then I guess you can say, well, look, all the rest of the world has lined up in favour of it and you're the ones that have hindered it while you're still trying to organise other things like trying to get more humanitarian aid in and you know trying to actually get a cessation of hostilities in some form on the ground try, try and get some kind of a consensus you know among a certain group of people. I mean th- this story is obviously still very much at the wild speculation stage a, a, you know to which we are contributing but do any of the papers covering this or of the papers covering this do any of them appear to be better informed than any of the others? Uh, n- not really. I mean, I think there are a lot of people talking to a lots of former ambassadors and a lot of people um, around the UN and, you know, it obviously reports out of Washington is what we're kind of relying on very heavily. But I think, you know, it's got that slight feel of a last week before Christmas, you know, who, who's still in the office that we can call who's picking up the phone? Uh, um, but I think, you know, Anthony Blinken not getting a quiet Christmas break as we will come on to. Well, indeed, on the subject of Anthony Blinken, but moving off what may be about to happen to what we're reasonably sure has actually happened or will actually happen. This is Blinken uh, meeting the President of Mexico to talk about the the border migrant crisis. Yes, I mean the Financial Times has uh, reported on this saying uh, Joe Biden has ordered some of his most senior officials to go to Mexico in the coming days for talks with the Mexican President. This is because of the situation on the, the US-Mexican border um, and it seems to have escalated uh, further and they are cl- closing um, rail links between the US and Mexico, which, interesting, if you read elsewhere in the FT, is causing other problems because ahead of Christmas, this is stopping beer and food and cars <laughs> and all sorts of things going across the border, um, as well as the people who they do not want to go. Um, so they are sending quite a high-level team, you know, sending the Secretary of Homeland Security um, and the Homeland Security Advisor to to go to Mexico and go and, and talk to talk to the Mexican government about this. Um, but you can see this is potentially, obviously, you know, a big problem, particularly coming into an election year. I mean. It- It's also a fairly impossible one for the president, I guess. I mean, first of all, there there clearly is an issue at the at the border between the United States and Mexico. The situation is very, very far from ideal, but it's being made into even more of a thing, obviously, by the president's opponents, and the loudest of the president's opponents are the kind of people who would still not be happy, even if he actually literally built the wall that President Trump so notably failed to do. Yes, it is, and it's, you know, interesting uh, looking through this article about, you know, the number of southern governors, in- including Democrats as well. I mean, the, you know, it's a blasting what they call federal in action, um, sending National Guard troops to the border from Arizona, um, the Republican governor of Texas saying the federal government has left the state to fend for itself, which is kind of often what they would like the state to do, but there we are. Um, and then sort of, you know, law- lawsuits and all sorts of things. So there's, you know, a really, you know, big debate going on that, you know, obviously with the, everyone's got the election in mind and, you know, nobody is, as you say, going to be happy. Well, turning to the French newspapers, to Le Figaro in particular, uh, we have some sense of what might be the 
the theme of the big row around the the Macron Christmas dinner table. Yes. Now this, I mean, you know, this is one of those stories where you know it is a very very French story. I think. Um, so, <laughs> uh, so Emmanuel Macron has ended up in um, a big argument, not least with his own culture minister, Rima Abdul Malak, because he was asked about a, a French documentary uh, on Gerard Depardieu, which has raised further allegations, a sort of series of allegations about rape and sexual assault, which have been you know, plaguing um, the actor for quite a long time. Emmanuel Macron said that he was you know, a great actor, he had admired him, and he makes France proud. Um, obviously, a lot of people not agreeing with this, and there's been a, a demand that people should, they should look into whether he should have the Légion d'honneur uh, removed, so Macron seems to be coming down on the other side of this, saying, you know, in fact, I think he was just trying to really say, you know, innocent until proven otherwise, um, but this has kind of not, not gone down particularly particularly well. Um, but yeah, it's it's surprising that he's decided to, to take that side in this argument. I mean, you know, we've had people like Carol Bouquet, you know, Depardieu's former partner, also saying, you know, I, I never saw anything wrong with him. And, you know, a lot of people criticising this, this documentary and saying, you know, it was intrusive. But I think on the other side, there's a lot of people now saying, you know, look, French, well-known French people need to, you know, own up to their past behaviour. I mean, there is an, an argument there, of course, that the the Légion d'honneur is a it's 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 a bestowal of the French state. It, you are being honoured by the nation, and therefore, it's a reflection on the nation. I guess the the conduct of the people who wear that decoration. Does does Le Figaro's article give any sense of why Macron has choos, chosen rather to pick this fight any distance beyond just saying, look, if you know. If, if 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 this does come to court and if there is a conviction, then yes, we would think about it. But otherwise, Merry Christmas. Um, no, you think you would sort of just try not not to talk about it. Really, he's just saying. I think you know the ministry has got um, a bit ahead of itself, and you know I think there's also there's also the other political rows going on in the moment in France about you know immigration, um, for instance. But I think maybe Macron is trying to split the difference you know he probably thinks that still a lot of people think of Depardieu as you know this this great actor and don't remember all the things like not wanting to pay his taxes taking Russian <laughs> citizenship then kind of backtracking on that uh, you know buying lots of property in in Russia and lots of other things that you might think uh, think again about his his being honoured but maybe more people in France still think of him as you know this great film star who is in just about every French film for a long time. Terrence Diasny thank you for joining us you are listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Monocle's December-January issue is here. With temperatures dipping across the Northern Hemisphere, the bumper publication is packed with seasonal highlights and global insights. Here are three key reports you shouldn't miss. One, the annual soft power survey. We celebrate the countries that have mastered the arts of global influence and built nations on pillars of respect, freedom and quality of life. Two, a visit to Finland's forests. Despite 75% of its landmass being covered by woods, Finland's furniture makers might soon run out of timber. We meet an established maker, an innovator and a new industry shaker who are all finding ways to produce wooden furniture more sustainably. Three, a global roundup of Christmas treats. We visit five specialist bakeries whose goodies are an essential ingredient in the celebration to cover all this and more in the latest issue of Monocle. Pick up a copy at your favourite newsstand or subscribe today at monocle.com forward slash subscribe.
You are back with the briefing on Monocle Radio. The Finnish toy maker Juho Yusila has been crafting wooden toys for a hundred years. Its simple and beautiful toys have delighted generations of Finns and they often last decades. We dispatched our Helsinki correspondent Petri Burtsov to the factory in central Finland to find out what makes this fifth generation family company successful and why wooden toys continue to appeal to kids the world over. The end of the year is a busy time at the Juho Jussila toy factory in Jyväskylä. Wood is sewn into pieces, sanded and varnished, and then assembled into toys in all shapes and sizes by the expert craftsmen and women that have worked in this factory for decades. This has been a special year for the company as it celebrates its 100-year anniversary. A respectable achievement for any company, let alone one that makes simple wooden items in an age of digital screens and throwaway plastic toys. I sat down with Pinja Savo, who represents the fifth generation of this family business and who, instead of jumping straight into a leadership role, is learning the ropes on the factory floor, making toys with her hands. I began by asking Savo what it is about simple wooden toys that makes generation after generation of children fall in love with them. It's sharing enjoyable memories and this uh, nostalgia that's around them. You've had something you've really enjoyed, you want to share it and have these good memories so the new generations can have the same memories and enjoy the same things. There's not much that a hundred years ago that's same now. Children are the same that they were a hundred years ago. They still want to create and imagine things and they want to create their own playing around the toys. It hasn't changed so much. Kids are still kids. Research shows that playing with wooden toys has various benefits for a child's health and development. The natural tactility of wood is something that has a calming neurological impact on the brain. The simple design of the toys, such as the posting boxes, trains and block sets, promotes a playing environment that is more tranquil and one that encourages the child to focus on problem-solving and imaginative play. Instead of offering instant gratification, like many of the modern toys, this slower pace of play is beneficial for the child's cognitive development. Kids, it turns out, have not really changed that much in a century. Kids are mostly the same, but of course there's technology that wasn't there a hundred years ago. So it's quite important you take the kids away from it for a moment and they can enjoy more natural ways of playing and it's more like teaching and well like creativity around more natural more simpler toys it's like quite important in these times where you can just give the phone or laptop or something for a child and they can do nothing they they don't really benefit from it. It's quite simple. It's more natural material than plastic. And then our toys, they are targeted for 
quite young age. So digital toys, they would be probably for older kids, but I still think it's really important to find connection to a toy or a game that you have to play with, not like it plays for you. Of course, it gives a lot more for a child creativity, imagination, and a lot of uh, quite useful skills, like motoric skills. Your useless product catalogue consists of just a few dozen models, many of which have been in production for several decades, some close to a hundred years. The founder of the company, Mr. Juha Jussila, was a trained teacher and educator and believed that toys could help with a child's development. He designed toys that to this day are very simple, such as building cubes, posting boxes, hammer toys and games, such as Bagatelle, which incidentally became the company's best-selling toy in the 1930s, after the British royal family and the Prince of Wales in particular took a liking to it. Some of your oldest toys date back almost a hundred years, but I mean, do you ever come up with new toys and uh, sort of... How does the design process of coming up with new toys, how does it go? Somebody just one day says, hey, how about we start making something else? How, how does that work? Well, if there's a completely new model, it's like it just comes up. You don't really take the time to think about it because it, it's like it's the better the less you think about it. But then there's also like... You need to make a bit different types of things in different times. But they can be little changes, not not like entirely new models necessarily. As people grow increasingly aware of the harmful environmental effects of plastic toys, which are often discarded just after a year or two, wooden toys are enjoying somewhat of a renaissance. Not only is wood a renewable material, but wooden toys often last several decades. Yeah, the ecological aspect, it is really growing right now. Some parents want more natural materials for their kids to play with. And also, of course, it lasts longer. And we sell spare parts, so you don't have to buy an entirely new toy every time you lost a little part or something. It it lasts longer. So next time you're in a toy shop, spare a thought for simple wooden toys. You won't find them on the high street, and if you do, they'll be tucked away behind the glitter of the flashier modern toys. Wooden toys are elegant to look at and pleasant to touch. They encourage creative play and often last through several generations, creating stories and memories to be cherished. For Monocle in Jyväskylä, I'm Petri Burtsov. Thank you, Petri. Two shopping days till Christmas, folks. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Briefing. I'm Andrew Muller. And finally on today's show, our weekly reflection on what the last seven days have taught us. (laughs) 
We learned this week that it's terrible, ghastly, just a disaster, really, like possibly the worst thing that could imaginably happen if a woman cut her hair short. <laughs> oh, this gets graver still. You might want to bring in the fainting couch. We learned that this had happened. Miss France 2024 is et, et restera Miss What you heard there was the announcement of the winner of the latest iteration of apparently still-going beauty pageant Miss France, the tiara and bouquet being bestowed upon Miss Nord Pardi Calais, known to friends and family as Yves Gilles, from near Dunkirk. What you cannot see, though what we have cunningly foreshadowed, is that Miss Gilles has... Shortish hair. <laughs> Who ever heard of such a thing? Women with shortish hair. They'll be wanting the vote next, etc. We learned, however, though at this point really should not have been surprised, that even this transcendentally uninteresting development was not sufficiently trivial that it could not be developed as a new front in the general global culture war. Some people just not happy about the newly crowned winner of the Miss France pageant. It's crazy that this is happening. That's because she's the first winner there with short hair. Some viewers accuse the pageant of being woke. And this being a story about France and about outrage, we can probably get away with that frankly borderline chorus of mock Gallic umbrage we recorded a while back for reasons lost to history. Maybe it was just a slow afternoon. Who remembers? Seemed a good idea when we recorded at different times and so forth. But, and let's now pivot to a soundtrack of relatively cheerful accordion. Because what we learned when we looked into it a bit was that there really wasn't a story at all. Or at least what there was was much, much less of a story than the hours and hours and bloody hours of airtime devoted to it would have you believe. The winner of Miss France, who apparently is at the centre of a woke backlash because she has a pixie hairdo and the French like their Miss France winners to have long hair. And she's the first what actually happened, we learned, was this. We learned that a small number of angry morons and or Russian trolls, the winter evenings in Chelyabinsk are long, had posted disparaging comments about Ms. Gilles and her hair on social media. A substantial number of actual media outlets then flammed these entirely ignorable effusions by half-witted troglodytes up into a whole thing... <laughs> about an anti-woke backlash. Uh, critics, though, did accuse pageant organisers of wokeism, um, or at least pandering to wokeism, by appointing her the winner. They say that her short hair and her androgynous look is uh, a little too woke, even though the vote is... Despite the fact that said anti-woke backlash did not in any meaningful sense exist, honestly, it's almost like much of the media prefers to cover this sort of nonsense because it's cheaper than doing any actual reporting, and slash but it's almost like much of the media understands that much of its audience prefers consuming this sort of nonsense because it's easier than doing any actual thinking. This is What We Learn's Christmas message this year. 
Still, we learned that the woman at the centre of the storm was keeping her victory in commendably sharp perspective. I cut my hair without thinking about it, she says. I wanted to be different to all the rules of today. In interviews, she's hailed her victory a win for diversity. All right, Rosa Parks. However... We learned that this was not the only intersection of beauty pageants and politics of reasonably recent times, which was exciting for us at least, as we didn't quite have room last week for explaining that we'd learned that in Nicaragua, absolute uproar had been occasioned. Come on, let's have some absolute uproar. Absolute uproar had been occasioned by this. The new Miss Universe is... We learned, to be clear, not that Miss Nicaragua, promoted as of that exultant shriek to Miss Universe, had short hair. She doesn't. It's sort of a shoulder-length arrangement. Oh, Thank well, God for so that. Well, I, very much care about this kind of thing, and I'm definitely not mental. ¿Cuántos años se han perdido? Instead, we learned that Miss Nicaragua had, in her time, turned up at protests against the increasingly deranged rule of Nicaragua's crooked thug of a president, Danny Ortega, and that, as a consequence, the director of the Miss Nicaragua pageant had been charged with actual treason. We learned that Ortega's vice president, Rosario Murillo, who is also Ortega's wife, a common arrangement in completely sane and normal and not at all repressive and bent countries, was positively incandescent, as will now be mediated by Monocle's swivel-eyed paranoia desk chief, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We see the rude use and the crude and evil terrorist communication, which seeks to turn a beautiful and well deserved moment of pride and celebration into a destructive coup. We learned basically that it actually is possible to lose a dignity off to a beauty contest. But... We learned that times were generally tough for beauty contest proprietors and indeed for strikingly bouffanted mannequins slathered in three inches of orange makeup making inane pronouncements about how they hope to bring peace to the world. We learned that this guy... And then they have cans of soup. Soup. And they throw the cans of soup. ...had been whisked off the ballot for next year's US presidential election in the commendable state of Colorado, the Supreme Court of which had decided that his behaviour towards the end of his term had gotten, for their tastes, a little too contravention of the insurrection clause of the 14th Amendment E. But we learned that Donald Trump's cheerleaders were absorbing this setback with all the philosophical equability and abiding stout-hearted faith in the rule of law for which they have become justly revered. We're being baited so their actions are justified. That's how it feels. The more the left overplays their hand, the scarier this gets. Is it not logical, at least to consider, maybe even to assume, that some on the left are hoping to spark some type of civil unrest here. Yes, just imagine someone sparking civil unrest, like maybe even inciting a hapless rabble of credulous yokels to ransack the Capitol building or something. That would be awful. Eleven more months of this, folks.
That is all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Emma Searle. Our studio manager was Steph Chungu. The Briefing returns at the same time on Monday. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening.